Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, My goal here is to find interesting, unusual, and um, high-performing people in their field, doctors, clinicians, scientists, etc., that are doing novel things, not just your run-of-the-mill work. So uh, today I have Dr. Michael Snyder, PhD. Um, He's a Stanford W. Ashman professor and chair in the Department of Genetics also at the Center for Genomics and Personalized Medicine. We're going to be talking about um, various topics within genomics and sequencing. So, Michael, thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. Yeah, if you would, what's uh, your current research about? Yeah, well, what we're trying to do is bring all these new technologies and something called big data into trying to transform healthcare. uh, Because I guess to be quite frank, I think the way we practice Healthcare these days is entirely wrong. It's very old-fashioned in many respects. Uh, that is to say, we typically focus on people when they're ill, and we really don't spend much energy trying to keep people healthy. So I want to transform that. I want to work on trying to understand uh, people's health and keep them healthy so that you can actually catch disease at its earliest time. So we can really work on healthcare and not sick care. Well, how do you do that? Because um, you know, I know myself and other people, when you're healthy, you don't care. You don't want to go to the doctor. You're not worried about it. You know, when you're sick, then you think about it. Yeah, that's totally the wrong attitude, I would argue. (laughs) And it is the the way things work now. But if you think about it, you really need to understand your healthy baseline. And that way, when you get ill, you can detect it at its earliest possible time before you're symptomatic. By the time, for example, in cancer, many kinds of cancer, when you detect it, it's very, very late. And there's nothing you can do about it, especially stage four cancer. So really the name of the game is to follow people while they're healthy. And I think one key aspect of this is to, first of all, make it easy to do that. That's one reason we don't do it so much now, right? It's kind of a pain to go to a physician's office. Uh, And also we don't really learn a whole lot when we go. I think we can now measure people with some of these new technologies I'll talk about in a second, but I I think we can do this at a level that's never been possible before, and that's really what's transformative about today versus, uh, say, even 10 years ago. Well, what can be looked at? So when I go for a yearly physical, you know, height, weight, blood pressure, et cetera, if I'm ambitious, I'll get a whole bunch of blood markers done at the time, maybe, maybe even do that every six months, but what would be a, a protocol that would shed a lot more light on what is going on with a person. Yeah, we would argue that there's many more advanced technologies. You could literally make many tens of thousands of measurements on people now that, and again, that was not possible before. And so some of the technologies that we're doing, so this is what our research is all about. We will sequence people's DNA, their genome, to try and predict their genetic risk for disease. So your genetic information you probably know is very important for determining disease risk, at least it's part of the equation. And by determining the the letters, the four-base code of people's genome, 
we can make some level of disease risk prediction. Just from the first 70 people we sequenced, we found 12 that had clinically actionable information in their genome, meaning one person had, as an example, a BRCA mutation, which puts them at high risk for breast cancer. Uh, we had one person a mutation in, a, in what's called a, a cardiomyopathy or a heart gene. And it turns out that actually they had, their young person, they actually had a heart defect that was predicted from their genome that was caught because we did this, they did a follow-up test, and now they're on drugs. And so we've had several things like that. Another person with a mutation suggesting they were at risk for certain kinds of cancer. It turns out when they did a whole body MRI, they, they wound up having early thyroid cancer, and that was caught early because we had their genome sequence. But that's just one of the technologies. We, would, we also measure using some things called omics technologies. We measure as many molecules as possible out of people's blood and urine, especially out of blood. So we'll measure all their, what are called RNA molecules, metabolites, proteins, lipids. We'll measure as many, many molecules as possible, literally tens of thousands out of people's blood. And that can tell us, give us a much more precise understanding of what that person's health state looks like. And then the last area I would argue that we, we follow, but and by the way, the microbiome is one of those ohms too. So we actually believe it or not, sequence people's poop. And that makes certain predictions about their health as well. And then the last thing that we do is we do a lot with what are called wearables, smart watches. Some people wear rings, but we actually have these, these you know, uh, smart watches on people. Uh, most people use them as fitness trackers. We actually use them for following people's health. Long before it's fashionable, we started this. So we can actually tell from a smartwatch, we think when people are getting sick before they realize it because their heart rate goes up. So we've written algorithms to be able to see that. In fact, this turned out to be very, very critical for me. I was able to figure out when I first got Lyme disease because my blood oxygen dropped and my heart rate went up. And that told me something was wrong. And then I later figured out fairly quickly that it was Lyme disease, took um, doxycycline, cleared it right up. So we would argue that by measuring people longitudinally while they're healthy, lets you follow people in a healthy state and then find disease at its earliest possible moments. With the wearables, uh, what's the error rate? You know, if, uh, you know I'm, I'm asking about this also in reference to the new virus that's going around and, you know, people checking temperature, let's say in China, you know, what if you're running around and you get hot? I mean, that, uh, <laughs> what if um, you're exercising and your oxygen saturation goes down because you're, I don't know, you're out of shape? Yeah, like, how do well, these wearables not give false positives? Yeah, great question. So this is something we're still working on. So we, we first published this three years ago, as you might imagine, with this new COVID-19 infection running around, we're pushing on this full blast. And other groups are too now as a consequence of our work. So we are tuning the algorithms that so far, retrospectively, that is to say, looking at people who got sick, we can see their heart rate going up well in advance of them reporting they were ill. So we think this occurs before some of the more severe symptoms, meaning when you get congested, things like that, your heart rate will go up and your skin temperature will also elevate typically. So, and that can be measured from a smartwatch. We think from a smart ring, there are certain rings that can measure heart rate, skin temperature. So we, we, we think at least retrospectively, it has basically 100% sensitivity. We don't yet know for people like COVID-19 who are very, have mild or no symptoms, whether we can pick it up or not. I predict we'll pick up a certain fraction. What that fraction is, I don't know. We're trying that now. We're putting these, we're, we're pulling in data for people who have 
COVID-19 and other diseases to see other respiratory um, viral infections to see whether we can tell, A, are they getting sick even when they have very, very mild symptoms? And B, can we tell a COVID-19 signature that's different from other ones? So we think, it, it. I'm pretty sure it should work at some level because actually one of the times I was sick, I didn't know from symptoms, but I knew there was a certain biomarker, it's called C-reactive proteins, highly elevated, just like when I'm sick, but I didn't feel sick. And we actually figured that out from my smartwatch. So, but getting to your issue about false positives, we think we can tune the algorithms, meaning that if you're running or something, you right now we're using resting heart rate. So we avoid when you're running. I think there are ways of telling when you're running from your smartwatch, you know, that you're accelerating and therefore you have to actually use a different part of the algorithm to be able to tell uh, that. So, so you, we can actually distinguish a certain level of that. And then the other part I would say is just common sense. I mean, if you're sitting in a scary movie and your heart rate goes up, well, you would probably, and you know, we send you a signal saying your heart rate's up. You would probably just ignore that because you're watching a scary movie and you know it. But if you're just sitting around on a couch reading a book and your heart rate is running high, there's probably something going on. Oh, it's a boring book anyway. So you get the well, idea. What about, Go ahead. Yeah, do you think that it would be more effective if you looked for, let's say, a minimum of three con confirmatory signals over a four-hour period? I'm just making this up. But you think, think strategies like that would be um, would reduce the error rate to a point where it's very workable, very usable. Absolutely. And so that's exactly what we're doing. So we originally built it around, we tried to build around heart rate and skin temperature, our, our algorithm. Um, it didn't work as well for skin temperature because I think a lot of people were wearing their, their smartwatch a little bit loosely. So we didn't get the kinds of measurements we we're looking for. So in our first version of this algorithm, we just use heart rate. But then the newer versions, we're trying to integrate all that information, skin temperature, heart rate variability, heart rate, other, and you mentioned blood oxygen. Some devices can measure that. So we are trying to bring that in as well. And I do think that'll give you a clearer signature. But still, when you exercise, all those things will happen too. So you still have to normalize for that sort of activity. But, but it's all doable. It's, I think it's all quite solvable. We have to tune the algorithms on a personal level so that we can try and be as accurate as possible. But I think all these things, they just kind of, they'll give you a heads up. Like they say, if you, and I don't think you need four hours, by the way, we think 30 minutes of a signal is good enough to be able to see whether you're ill or not. Uh, so well, it depends I, I on context. I mean, what if I'm, uh, I don't know, I'm in the London tube and it's hot and there's no air conditioning <laughs> and I'm on a long ride and it's 40 minutes. I know, I know, I'm not trying to, yeah, yeah, no, you're raising but, you're yeah. you're raising interesting challenges, but believe it or not, a lot of the watches will measure air temperature at the same time they're measuring your skin temperature, so they can see that delta. <laughs> so again, we're gonna have to tune our algorithms a lot to watch out for those false positives. But I I think it is doable, right? You it's pretty amazing. Self-driving cars, people said the same issue. Look how complicated that is. You'll never build a self-driving car because it's just too complicated, people's environmental surroundings. And sure enough, here we are. They're actually getting pretty good. Um, so that's how I view these. These We're in the early days of self-driving cars, if you will. We'll, we'll probably have some crashes that don't quite work, but we're trying our best. So I guess if I was to paint a picture, I'm, I'm just assuming, but you let me know. You know, if, if, if uh, a lot of people, you had their baseline data, you sequenced their genome, 
you had, you know, their blood markers, you had all this stuff as a baseline, you know, a couple of times a year. Then they're wearing a smartwatch that can look for, you know, excursions from their normal. And you know what the normal is based on that person. And then maybe you're somehow able to couple it with their medical history. And it all gets baked into the algorithm that personalizes it in the wearable for the person. Do you think that that would be a, uh, you know, maybe an ideal picture or a, a possible future picture for people that would help their health? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of where we're trying to head this thing. So um, I would argue we're, we're trying to make your smartphone your personal health dashboard. We're, we've been working on this for some time. It's actually getting pretty good now, I think, where you can bring a lot of your health information, your electronic health records, your smartwatch data, all into your all into basically an app that you can display on your smartphone. So you can, in fact, collect a lot of these data. You can look at it. You can decide what fields you like to look at and see how it's performing. We'll tell you where you're out of range relative to your normal values. That's the goal, as well as maybe out of range relative to population averages. So we think that the this kind of information could be extremely valuable for managing your health, just like your car dashboard takes a lot of information into it and then puts it into a few lights. And the simple ones are things like, you know, a gas gauge, you're running low on gas in your speedometer, but there, you know, you have something called a check engine light. That's usually measuring a lot of different things uh, that all reads into this check engine, which means go to your, um, uh, you know, your car maintenance person who will help fix it. And I think to some extent, that's how the personal health dashboard, I, I hope it'll be a little better interpretable than what I just described for a car, that is, we'll be able to say, well, look, there's some things that look a little funny with, you know, maybe your metabolism or this, that you could, again, you'd see this flash up and then you go to your doctor to try and work through it. But even how often you should go get measured, go to a doctor's office, it's totally arbitrary these days when you're healthy, you rarely go, as you point out. But I think in the future with these dashboards, you would actually go to a doctor and get measured based on your disease risk and your trajectories. That is to say, if you see that you're, um, you know, you're at risk for certain cardio things and you start seeing your, some of these cardio markers, these heart markers going off and their trajectory looks like it's changing kind of quickly, well, maybe you better go get measured, first of all, more advanced tests for that, but maybe get measured more frequently just to make sure everything's progressing okay. So I would argue the, the world of the future will be, will, will have more personalized uh, sampling of people while they're healthy. And in my world, in the long run, it'll all be Amazon. Um, uh, so if you think about, it, especially now, given that we're all locked down in the COVID-19 epidemic, in the... Um, future, I think a lot of medicine is just going to be done remotely where you'll give little prick samples at home, you'll mail them in and you'll get back your results. And that will become a lot easier. It sure makes a lot more sense than going to a doctor's office and getting sick. But, you know, the question of who owns what data and who's allowed to see what, it already seems to bedevil medical issues. You know, like I know that the smart devices are not allowed to reveal all the data they know. To the public because it hasn't been cleared, let's say, through FDA. And then what if, uh, you know, there's some data that you could show the person, but then you worry the person will use it in such a way as to hurt their health or not help themselves, you know? So it just seems tricky. Like, who owns the data that's generated? Who's allowed to see what? When can you show interpretations or not, where you're just forced to show, 
you know, call your doctor type idiot lights. It, it, that's that part of it. I'm not sure how that would be addressed. Yeah, I think it's all manageable. I, to me, it's a little bit clearer than I think it is others. I think the person who owns the data is you. You own your own data and you decide how to share it. Uh, and it's true, you may not be able to interpret your data as well as someone else. And prob- ideally, a doctor would know, possibly know better, although I don't think that's always true even today. Many physicians don't, when you first get checked out, they don't know what's wrong with you. They see something's off and they send you a specialist. So I think uh, these data come in now. You're raising some really good points. That is to say, if you're a worrier, maybe you don't want all this information relayed back to you. Maybe you want it relayed to your doctor uh, or just have this light go off that says, that you know, it's, you should probably go see your physician now. On the other hand, I think if you uh, can handle the data and are comfortable with it, I think for it to come back and for you to dig in a little deeper and try and understand if you see certain markers going off uh, and you you then dig into it a little bit better, that's going to be better overall because I think nobody has as much time to figure out you and your health than you do. Your your doctor these days, you probably appreciate, has about 15 minutes to spend with you in the physician's office. Some of the measurements they take are relatively worthless. Whereas, uh, you know, you smartwatch can actually give you a lot more measurements, uh, much of which like the heart rate, heart rate variability is a lot more meaningful uh, when you measure it continuously over time than, than that short measurement you get in a doctor's office. So, so some of the information is just going to be so much more valuable. And then how to handle it. I think it's like your car. You don't worry about your car breaking down all the time. You, um, you know, when the light goes on, you get concerned and then you go manage it. And I think that's how these health dashboards will be. It'll be, they'll be displaying the things you're at risk for. And then, you know, in principle, you could take action to try and mitigate those risks. Um, now, not everybody does, right? People are overweight. It's obvious you should lose weight and probably exercise, that sort of thing. And they still don't act on that information. And that's a shame. But there are possibly motivational tools you could use to help uh, with that as well. So, in uh, trying to create these dashboards and these devices, what what interesting confounding things have you found? You know, let's say you're looking at I don't know someone's uh, sodium levels and some other stuff in the blood, and you know if they eat the wrong food just for one meal, it throws all the numbers way off. You know, have you found any things that would be typical in someone's behavior that would maybe cause their levels to go way out of whack, but it's not a true signal. It's just a temporary one. Yeah, um, that's a great question. So I can answer that in two ways. The biggest signals we see where it throws people off are when they get ill, when they get a viral infection, for example. Uh, The other, um, I I may have not said this yet, but, you know, from we've been profiling 109 people with this kind of very, very deep data. And of those 109 people, 49 have had major health discoveries. We caught some with early lymphoma, two people with serious heart issues, some people with anemia, borderline anemia that didn't know if people even were diabetic and didn't know it. So we found all kinds of very interesting and things that are very, very important for people's health. And so I would argue in many cases, very life-saving. So we think these technologies, again, if used right, can be extremely valuable. So, yeah, but I think getting to your other point, probably the biggest thing 
that's out there now that we're doing a lot with is something called a continuous glucose monitor. You actually put it on your skin and it sticks in you a little bit like a T TV test, a tuberculosis test. So it pokes on you, wear it for two weeks and it actually measures your glucose levels. So what turns out to be the case is that a lot of people after they eat their glucose spikes really high. And so for diabetics like type one or type two, to not manage your glucose levels just spike through the ceiling. But it turns out there are a lot of people who are pre-diabetic and even some diabetics who don't know. In fact, nine out of 10 pre-diabetics have no idea they're pre-diabetic. And most of those will go on and become diabetic in their lifetime. So these glucose monitors, actually, they poke on your side, they're sitting there. And if you eat a meal uh, and you're one of these pre-diabetics, it may just drive your, your glucose levels through the ceiling. And you can actually see which foods spike you, spike your glucose. And that turns out to be a very powerful management tool because different people spike to different foods. So you might spike to rice and I might spike to potatoes and someone else to bread. Different people spike to different foods. And by actually putting these sensors on, you can see what foods spike you. And, and the bottom line is, we think, by the way, the spiking is bad for you. So the bottom line is, if you put these on, you very quickly learn which foods are bad for you and which ones are good. It's very, very powerful technology. And it's not noise then. It's not just some weirdo event. It's fairly reproducible. That is to say, uh, now I'm type 2 diabetic, which, by the way, I figured out from my genome initially and then caught while I was doing these deep profiles. And so my, my um, so I'm actually type 2 diabetic, and I spike a lot, and I know exactly what foods spike me. And I tend to avoid those to try and keep my glucose levels and my spiking levels down, which we think is very, very important for managing your health. So I think a lot of these measurements are not just totally spurious, wacko things. They actually do have a lot of value. And if you're seeing them in real time, they're very, very powerful. Yeah, I wore a uh, you know, the Dexcom G6 for a couple of months, actually. And it was really instructive, but there was a lot of things that you know, just were unexplainable. And when I went to look, there was no explanation, you know, like what happens to your glucose during your sleep. And you know, I know like in the, in <clears throat> at the end of your sleep or when you wake up, there's this cortisol effect where it seems to rise, but it was still some weird effects, but I did learn a lot from using it, you know, depending on what I ate, for instance, the profile of the spike, the height of the spike, the depth of the trough after, you know, would change. And so it taught me a lot by having it. And it was, it made me realize, like, if you only uh, stick your finger, I don't know, once a week or once a day, you're missing out on these huge windows of data that could completely misinform you if you if you didn't have them, you know? That's absolutely true. 100% agree. Yeah. So you learned a ton. And you hit an area that's really, really interesting and we don't understand well yet, which is sleep and glucose control. So our lab's actually doing quite a bit there where it, it turns out it, it's really not clear to me yet what's going on. We're, we're doing a bunch of studies here where some people have very constant glucose levels during their sleep. It usually goes up or down, depends on the person. Some people, it bounces around a lot. You might be one of those, Richard, I'm not sure. Uh, for mine, it bounces around a lot. And so we're trying to understand why is that? Is it the REM sleep? Is it the deep sleep? It's not clear what's going on there. I have my own theories, but don't really know yet. So we think if we can solve that, though, figure it out. Why some yeah, spikers? Yeah. You know, what's cool, too, is once someone is using, is collecting this data, 
then if they have another problem, I bet you there'll be a lot of hidden correlations. Like, like we were just talking about, you know, glucose during sleep. I bet you that if enough people have these things and they also look and see if they have, let's say, sleep apnea or snoring or whatever it is, maybe there's a correlation there. So the more data we get or you get on somebody or on yourself, the more likely that someone will be able to draw a conclusion if something else happens to you. And that could inform, you know, the people collecting the data. Oh, look, you know, a, a thousand people, their doctors reported that, you know, apnea was correlated with glucose fluctuations while they slept or something. So it's like a virtuous circle, I guess, the more uh, modern. Yeah, 100% agree. Um, exactly. So people, it may be in the future that people will get a first indication of sleep apnea from your glucose patterns. That is a distinct possibility. And, and it, believe it or not, that's actually one of the things we're looking at. So, yeah, I... Well, you know, it, you know it would be good, too, if, uh, if a drug maker, you know, they get approved and the drug now goes out into the population, you know, if they would pay for or sponsor or subsidize wearables, they would get a lot of information on how, not only clinically, but just out in the wild, they're, you know, people that are taking this blood pressure, this new blood pressure medication, for instance, what's it doing to their other biomarkers? And they would, uh, you know, a drug company would really benefit from that on honing in their product or, you know, getting results and things like that too. So. Yeah, definitely agree for things like hypertension, like you just described, or for any serious heart issue, you'd be able to follow its impact on heart rate, heart rate variability, things like that. Yeah, I can tell you on the infectious disease stuff, um, someone came up to me after one of my talks and I was presenting you know, about smartwatches being used for detecting respiratory viral infections. And they mentioned how they actually, after one of my talks, went out and bought some smartwatches and uh, this person's wife actually had very elevated... Um, heart rate. It, it was running along fine. Suddenly it just jumped up and she went to her doctor and her doctor said, well, don't worry about that. Da, da, da. But it was running high. She knew it wasn't right. So went to a different doctor, gave her some antibiotics and, and uh, seemed to help a little bit with their symptoms, but it was still running high. So she went back again and they tried something else and that then brought it down to normal. And, and it was really the smartwatch that wound up being the monitor for her health. And it was very, very powerful because without that, she wouldn't have known what was going on. So uh, again, I think the fact that you can make these continuous measurements on people, they're very simple to do. They're, they give you a ton of data. Uh, they can really be used to, I think, effectively manage people's health. Yeah, definitely. So, so what do you think, what's going to be possible soon in the next year or two? And then what do you think is going to take maybe five plus years? Yeah, great question. So I think the smartwatch data and I think things like this COVID-19 are really going to stimulate the use of smartwatches as health devices. They're also not that expensive. They're going to get cheaper as time goes on. So I think that's a big thing. I think the omic stuff is a little more expensive, but we, we do think it has a lot of value. So I'm totally conflicted, but we did form a company called QBio that actually is commercializing. It's, it's a more medical version of what I described. So it does a lot of these molecular data collections, but not as deep and, and more clinically relevant. It also does whole body MRI and um, will bring in wearables and things like that at some point. And so it is collecting a lot of data uh, that's really he health impactful. And just off the bat, just like the study we're running out of our lab, it has found some pretty significant findings like detected some with early pancreatic cancer, early prostate cancer, quite a few different things. So 
I think it is going to roll out there. Now, the number one stumbling block for getting this to roll out there is who pays. Our health system, and I started out saying, I think it's broken. Uh, where most people really only get paid, most physicians, most healthcare only get paid when people show up at the doctor's office and they only do that when they're sick. There's very little incentivization to keep people healthy. And I think that's how things have to shift. We should be, you know, rewarding people uh, to stay healthy, either through some financial benefits, say perhaps you pay lower insurance. I'm not quite sure what the right formula is here. Uh, but, you know, people who might exercise more, get discounts on their insurance, something like that. But we need some mechanism to financially incentivize people to, to stay healthy and, and to get these measurements, I think, should save in some areas has got to save a lot of money uh, compared to just waiting till they get ill and treating them, which is much, much more expensive. So, so I think we've got to come up with a formulation. One idea that I've heard that I really like it. The main motivators for people are usually financial or family. So family members see each other's uh, health measurements, if you will. They might help uh, push along other people in the family to live a healthier lifestyle. That might be one angle. I also think companies could get involved. Some of the big companies, uh, it's in their best interest to actually keep their employees healthy. So if they offer incentives that way, that's another idea. But we've got to figure out how to you know, again, incentivize people to stay healthy. And that might be a business to business kind of relationship. It could be uh, consumers. It's, it's Actually, it's going to wind up being both. But. Okay. Well, very good. Um, any, um, you know, whether it's from you and your efforts or, you know, ones out there that you're not working on, any particular wearables or biomarkers that you think are going to be tremendously, in fact, impactful that you're looking forward to seeing? Well, on the wearable side, there's no question heart rate, heart rate variability and skin temperature, some of these other things, even blood oxygen, they they really do measure a lot of useful characteristics. You can do it off a wearable, which is cheap. So that's a no brainer. But it's also true that these um, following people's molecules in their blood, I think we're going to get better and that's going to get a lot cheaper too. And that can have certain kinds of signatures that'll be medically informative. And, and then I guess I'm kind of biased because we did form a company around in the space that I think does have a lot of the most important elements. Right now, it's very expensive. The whole body MRI, we think, is pretty important. At some point, that price should drop a lot in the future. So I think we we should be able to become uh, quite impactful by m- making lots of measurements on people in a way that's convenient and I hope will really keep people healthy. So the goal is to have people live a long, healthy life. And then quite frankly, then just die. That's probably the best way, but go on as long as possible with a healthy life, uh, as opposed to sort of living for a long time healthy and then gradually becoming ill and immobile and not so happy lives towards the end. Um, so I think, we can, I can think we can expand people's health span, as they like to say. Yeah, no, that would be good. Excellent. Well, what's the best way for people to keep up with your work, um, either to look at papers you're putting out or, you know, uh, devices themselves that you're working on? Like, how should they find out more? Well, um, I guess a bit bias here. We do have a book called um, Genomics and Personalized Medicine that has a lot on the DNA side, but a little bit of some of the other things I mentioned, the wearables and things like that as well. So that's one. And then, of course, if you go to our lab's website, you'll see 
quite a few simple videos about like one on wearables, one on measuring exposures. They, we call it the exposome, where you can actually sample the, the environment around you on a personal level, meaning see oh. your own environment. It's kind of cool, yeah. And then um, and the other on genomics. So, so I have some short videos out. You can either look at our website or on YouTube. Yet another way, and certainly for the more sophisticated ones, they're welcome to read our papers. We've I think the culmination of a lot of work, we've been profiling this group of uh, 109 people now for about seven years, maybe a little bit longer, uh, I guess seven and a half now. And yeah. we've been learning a ton. So we've actually been able to publish a lot of papers. Actually, we now see for the first time how people age at an individual level. So we know markers of aging before. This might digress a bit for you here, Richard, but we, we actually can follow how people age at an individual level because oh. we're taking multiple measurements over time. It's very, very cool. And everybody ages differently. Some people are cardio agers. We call it age type. Some people are cardio agers. Other people are metabolic agers. Others are immune agers. Some people are all of the above. So we, we can follow this. And it's potentially actionable because some of the markers are clinically relevant. Maybe we'll have to uh, you know, have you back soon to talk about the different types of aging. Yeah, <laughs> Happy to do that. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Michael, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Sure. Have fun with it. It's been fun talking to you. Bye. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.